Hey everyone, this is May Heinmarsh from BS Free MD. And when I'm not sipping a cocktail and laughing about some of the crazy things we've done in medicine, I'm totally nerding out on financial residency. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and we have a show for you today that I think all of you will benefit from because we are going to be talking about this $1.9 trillion stimulus. Holy smokes, that's a lot of money. It's an absolute truckload of money. But some of that is going to be going to all of you in our community, and most of it won't be, unfortunately. But I've got on the expert, the CPA, my partner at our tax planning practice, physician tax advisors, that is John McCarthy, back on the show to go through what is in this. And I also drop a little bit of news on what that means for student loans. So stick around if you have some student debt and you're interested to know what this means for that, because I think there's going to be some clickbaity headlines coming that you all need to be aware of. But before we jump in, let's hear from today's sponsor, which is Physician Financial Services. Not to be confused with my firm, Physician Wealth Services, but Physician Financial Services. And they're a business that's widely recognized in our physician community for awesome disability insurance. Larry Keller, a CFP who has been in insurance and financial services industry since 1990. And unlike medicine, which is a standardized path that Physicians must take to gain the education and training experience requirements necessary to obtain. The insurance and financial services industry doesn't have that. So working with an agent that is familiar with both the underwriting of disability and life insurance policies for physicians can all but guarantee a smooth underwriting process in which the desired outcome is likely. And while he might not be the doctor's first phone call regarding their insurance needs, he's often their last. And you know Larry, he's been on the show several times. He's a great guy, great guest, super knowledgeable. And you can find Larry by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash Larry Keller, L-A-R-R-Y-K-E-L-L-E-R. Or like always, you can click the link in the description of the show that you're listening to me right now. All right, let's bring John on and talk all about what's in this $1.9 trillion stimulus and what that all means for uh, our bottom lines. So let's jump in and hang out with John. John, what's up? Welcome back on the show. Hey, nice to be back. Uh, is it nice to be back? Well, it's a break from tax returns. Okay. So see there, I'm helping you out. I'm breaking up your day. I'm making it fun. We're going to be talking all about the American Rescue Plan. Basically, everyone's just going to call it the STEMI check. But what are some of the takeaways right now from this stimulus package? We know it's $1.9 trillion. We know it's an absolute ton of money. I don't actually think anyone could fathom how big $1.9 trillion is, but what are the big takeaways if someone wants to hear like two minutes of this and then wants to bounce out? Yeah, so big takeaways, high level. We'll talk about stimulus checks here in a little bit, but we don't need to rush to file the 2020 tax return. And we'll talk a little bit why that's the case later on as we go in. But the other thing is we just made retroactive changes to the tax law. So it's going to be a little bit until your software is potentially ready to file your return if you fall into one of our categories that we'll talk about a little bit later. So wait for some revised software if you're filing yourself. If you've already filed and some of these things impact you that were retroactive, the IRS does not want you to file an amended return at this time, especially when we're talking about unemployment changes that we'll talk about later on. So 
So hold on the amended return as well. There was a note today that the IRS still is processing 7 million 2019 returns and 2020 returns. They have three times as many returns in process than they should compared to past years. So we don't want to add to that right now. (laughs) So it's going to be a while until they get to those. And the last takeaway I'll say before we jump into some of the specifics, please be nice to your CPA right now. They are dealing with retroactive changes. Their software is not up to date yet because the IRS hasn't even provided guidance yet because we just signed this bill. And we're trying to do their best for our clients, obviously. And there's a lot of things here that, as we'll talk about, require us to analyze 2019, 2020, and 2021 to make sure we get the best answer for our clients and get them the most money back that we can. Be nice to your CPAs. They are working really hard right now. (laughs) They will get your return done, but there's a lot going on right now. So for those that don't know, John is a partner at the Physician Tax Advisors that we co-founded together along with Casey Kress, who's always on our Friday shows, and we help physicians with their taxes. So there's lots of you that we are helping currently. So he's begging for mercy for you all to be kind, which I think is comical and very fun. But that makes complete sense because now we're going to start to unpack what is actually inside this and how it can benefit or somehow how it actually hurts some of us. So, John, let's just start with the big obvious one, the stimulus checks. What's in this stimulus check? How much are people getting and how much are some people not getting? Yeah. So in a lot of ways, this functions like some of our other stimulus programs that ran last year. So we're looking at $1,400 per eligible individual. But once again, there's income restrictions on the stimulus checks. We're talking mostly to our fellows and residents here. The income phase outs are 75000 individual, 112000 head of household, 150000 married filing joint. So if you're above these phase out limits. You're not going to get a stimulus check depending on your fact pattern. We'll talk about that here in a second, but we're saying we're analyzing three years returns. That's what it takes to actually figure out whether you're going to get a stimulus check or not and when you're going to receive it. What's that fact pattern that you're referencing? So there is a really steep cliff on this round of stimulus payments, much more so than the other ones. So for example, If you earn $150,000 married filing joint, you're going to get the full stimulus credit of $1,400 per person. If you make $10,000 more, you make $160,000, you're getting nothing. It's a big cliff. There are cases you can work up with the right number of kids that earning $10,000 more in income costs you more in tax. You are less poor from a cash perspective than having made that income, which is crazy. You know, it's an effective tax rate essentially in that phase out area of 100% or more, which is just nuts, but it is what it is. Yeah. Let's look at realistically, this might be the only time I ever stick up for a politician, but you have to cut it somewhere. So at some point, someone will not get something and someone will. I think it's pretty brutal that if you made that extra 10K, it costs you 10K in actual tax, depending on where you're at. And that effective rate would be ridiculous. But at some point, they have to cut it somewhere. Is there any way that they could have done that better? Yeah, there's always a cutoff. What we saw in the earlier rounds of stimuluses was a much wider range. So you didn't feel like the door got slammed on you for just making five, ten thousand $10,000 more. It was much broader. It was $20,000, $30,000 range. So this one's just a little more severe than prior. But it also means that there's potentially some tax planning here under the right circumstances. If you're self-employed in this range, you're doing a SEP IRA can make a whole heck of a lot of sense to bring down your income if you're just into that phase out. 
anything makes a difference if you're making between 150 and 160, like anything Mm -hmm. to lower it down to that 150. Mm -hmm. Okay. So basically those that are single, if you make 75K, 80K, somewhere in there, that's the phase out for them. And then 150 to 160 is kind of your deadly no-go range for those that are married filing joint. So you'd like to be below 75 or like to be below 150 if you can, and you're going to get the $1,400 per individual in your house. Yeah, this is a little different here. That's all dependents. So prior to this, it was kids. Here, if you're supporting a parent or if you're supporting someone that's college age, as long as they're dependent on your return, you're getting a credit for them this time around. So a little bit different a definition here, a little bit broader. And let's talk now about children, because now there's something completely separate for children with the tax credit. Yeah, one thing real quickly before we jump off that topic, I did want to revisit the, you know, when are you getting your stimulus here and the three-year period. So this is why I say there's no hurry to rush and file a return. The IRS is going to potentially look at three years worth of tax data to determine whether you're going to get this rebate and when you're going to get it. If you haven't filed your 2020 return yet, the IRS presumably has your 2019 information. They will use that to make a determination. And from what we're hearing, potentially that money is already being sent out this weekend. So if they have your 2019 info and you qualify, you may get a check on Monday or Tuesday or a direct deposit in this case, not a check. And so for those that know, just so we're clear, we are recording this on Saturday, March 13th for release that all of you are listening. If you listen in real time, you are getting this on Monday March 15th. We wanted to make sure that we had all the data and we could come out with everything for you guys. So we're recording this in a quick turn. That way it's the most up-to-date in what was signed into law. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, if the IRS has 2019 data, they're going to use that. If you've already filed your 2020 return, they are going to use your 2020 return if it's already on file. So if that qualifies you for the stimulus, great. They're going to use 2020. If your income in either of those years is too high, so let's say you filed 2019, it's too high, you haven't filed 2020, whenever you file your 2020 return, if it qualifies, then you will get a stimulus at some point once they process that return. If you're still not getting a stimulus from all of those (laughs) fact patterns, they're going to go to 2021 when you actually file your return. And if you qualify in 2021, then you will receive it as a function of filing your 2021 return. But then we're talking all the way into next spring. So I said, there's no hurry in filing a return. Make sure you know what your fact pattern is and what your upcoming filing is going to do for that stimulus rebate before you file it. That's amazing that they're going to hold some of this and earmark some of this cash for 2021 returns. That's crazy. Let's now head over to the expanded tax credits for having children. So once again, there's some good stuff in here for fellows and residents. They have increased the child tax credit from $2,000 to $3,000 for this upcoming year and all the way up potentially to $3,600 for children under the age of six. So you know, pretty big increase in the child tax credit. For one year only, 17-year-olds are going to qualify for this as well. So normally it was under 17 to qualify, which really meant 16 and under. So now it's going to be 17 and under. So a little bit of a benefit there. Bad news for people that may be moving to attending is that there's, once again, a phase out of that extra $1,000 that takes us from the existing $2,000 child tax credit to the $3,000 child tax credit. Similar phase outs here, as you guys might be used to on the attending side. Once your income grows up far enough, they're going to phase out that $1,000 pretty quickly. And then also potentially phasing out the $2,000 if you're under the same rules that are currently there, which is the $200,000 single and $400,000 
$1,000 joint. Some of that goes away, obviously, as you're attending. But the other wrinkle here, this is like the Wild West. They're just making up things here as we go along in tax policy world. This is a new concept. I think you explained it to me as they were building the plane midair. <laughs> yes, very much so, because we don't even have rules on some of this stuff. So we're reading the text of the legislation and try to figure out how the IRS is going to deal with this. But the IRS has been provided guidance to provide advanced child tax credits monthly from July through December. So essentially, they're going to prepay you monthly six out of the 12 months worth of child tax credit based on your returns as they've been filed as an advance on 2021. Completely new concept. We haven't done this before. Something new. This is going to be fun, especially next year for accountants. Don't talk to your accountants about this. They're a little ticked off figuring out how this is going to get reconciled next year. But <laughs> They're going to have some PTSD after this bill. So explain really <laughs> yes. quick how these advanced monthly payments could work. I know we haven't seen these. I know it's going to start in July of 2021. What does this look like? Are they going to be sending everyone uh, direct deposit checks again? Is the, how, how is this going to work? Yeah, if they have your direct deposit information already available to them, they are going to basically look at what they think your child tax credit is going to be worth for 2021 based on your historical filings. And they're going to send you one twelfth of that each month for six months. Now, hold the horses. Let's be cautious about this one. This one comes with a potential clawback. For those of you, you know, fellows and residents moving to attending maybe in 2021, this is your warning bell here. Uh, this can cause some underwithholding for you because this one is going to get reconciled on the 2021 return. We talked about the stimulus earlier. If you get that, there is no clawback. They don't ask for that back if your income goes up. This one they do for the child tax credit. So if you do not qualify for that, when we file your 2021 return next spring, <laughs> they are going to take this money back. Essentially, it's going to be another tax liability on your return. It could cause you to be, if you have a couple kids, a couple thousand dollars under withheld. Yeah. So I think it's really, really smart here for us to state this one more time, that if you are going to be an attending, you're going to finish residency or finish fellowship in 2021 and you have kids, and between July and December, you've received some of these advanced monthly payments, there will be a clawback, and you will have to pay a portion or all of that back when you file your 2021 tax return in April of 2022. So if that is you, stick it in a savings account, do not spend it, because that money is not yours. The government will want that back, they will want it back when you file your return. And instead of being pissed off at the CPA team that they're going to make you pay more tax, this is that warning shot across the bow. Do not spend that money because they will want that back. But if that is not you, if you are an intern and you have a family, that is not concerning you. If you think your income will phase up, if you have a spouse that will cause your income to shoot up well above the limits, then this is you. Or if it is you that's going to finish and actually become an attending and earn the paycheck that you deserve then this is also applying to you. So just be careful. I think, John, that was wise to give that disclaimer. I think it was beneficial to give it twice. Let's talk more about the credit expansion. 
Yep. So we've got some new things here on the dependent and child tax credit. So it used to be that we could take $3,000 for one child or $6,000 for two children or more as a deduction that would be figured out into a dependent care credit, a really vast expansion here. The maximum credit for one child used to be about $1,000 or $2,000 for two or more kids. The potential now is from $4,000 to $8,000 of a dependent care credit. I mean, really our fellows and residents probably they're eligible to potentially get this entire credit. This could be the decision of whether you put a child in daycare or not with this credit. This is pretty significant. So maybe expand a little bit more on how this credit works within your taxes and what this truly could mean for, let's say, a fellow earning $70,000 and has a family. Yeah, one of the nice things here is this thing is now fully refundable as well. So even if your tax liability isn't normally $4,000 or $8,000 or however much the credit is that's figured out, you'll get this money back actually in a refund. Wow. If you pay for the credit, you pay for the daycare to generate the credit. In order to get the full credit, you would have to have $16,000 of daycare expenses. In some parts of the country, that's not actually all that much, especially if you've got two kids. So It's like $1,250 a month. That's like nothing for some... Yeah. If you've got that full $16,000, you could be getting potentially a full $8,000 tax credit for those $16,000 of expenses. It's refundable. Once again, we have to watch out here. So we're talking to fellows and residents here primarily, but if you're making that income jump in 2021 from a fellow resident to attending, okay, we're in trouble. We got to pull that back because if your AGI is over about $440,000 for 2021, then you're not going to get anything. It used to be that you at least got $600 credit was the minimum that everyone got. They're even taking that away for people over $440,000 AGI. So a little bit of a tax increase for some of our attendings here on that side. So just watch that. Know where you're at in your income range to know whether you're going to be eligible for that. And that's usually going to be those that have a large signing bonus and has already had a working spouse in order to earn that kind of money in that short duration. So some of you are like, oh, whew, that's not me. Like I'm going into anesthesia and I'm only going to make 300 for the year. So like I only have 150K of that inflated salary. And so this would still apply to you. But there are several of you, we know, because we work with several of you out there, that this will absolutely affect. So I think really good with the disclaimers here on this because like we joked about, and you said they're building the airplane while in air, and this is tough to unpack and see how all this all plays out. And this means that tax planning has a really big deal. It was already a big deal, but if this doesn't scream it from the rooftops, tax planning and having a strategy around your taxes, not just giving your CPA all the stuff in February, March and saying, good luck, and they not actually plan anything, that strategy doesn't work anymore. You really need to be proactive on your taxes. That's why we partner together, John, at Physician Tax Advisors. That's why I'm so excited to be helping everyone. And this bill is just one more reason why you have to take tax planning very, very seriously. So what else do we have in terms of what's in this 1.9 trillion package? We won't get into all the craziness that they're spending elsewhere. 1.9 trillion is not just going to what we're talking about here. That would be fantastic if they actually gave everyone, and I'm not even saying like with phase outs where just anyone, what they currently have, they gave all that 1.9 trillion out to the people. That'd be amazing. But instead the people got like, what, 15% of the 1.9 trillion, the rest went to everywhere else, which was a lot of pork in that bill. But what can everyone else truly impact them from an individual level? 
All right. Let's talk about a couple retroactive changes, because what would tax season be like if we didn't change the rules that were already filing returns actively for clients and they have changed the rules on some of them? So let's talk about a couple of those. And that's why we're not in a hurry to file returns. If these two things apply to you, please hold off on your returns. So the first one is a premium assistant tax credit. For those of you that may be not familiar with that term, if you've purchased healthcare through an exchange, either you or your spouse, through healthcare.gov, essentially, you know, if you purchased it on an exchange. If your income was low enough, you would have qualified for some assistance in paying that premium, and they'd give it to you up front, basically apply it to the insurance coverage as you go throughout the year. So that's what we're calling the, the premium assistant tax credit. That thing gets trued up on your return. So obviously, you're estimating your income early in the year. You may not know exactly how much you're going to make, but you're getting these credits throughout the year to help pay for insurance. And we reconcile that as part of your return. And of course, sometimes we overestimate, sometimes we underestimate, right? So sometimes we get a little bit more credit on the return. Sometimes we got to pay back the IRS a little bit for that. There's a one-time kind of what I would say, get out of jail free card this year, if you underestimated your income and you ended up making a lot more and you were going to have to pay back some of these credits, the IRS has now been instructed to say, nah, you're good. You don't have to pay those back this year, even though you've really kind of messed up your estimate. So that's one of those things that isn't in the software yet, for sure. So if you have healthcare.gov exchange policy and you had some of these credits, please hold off on your return until your software gets updated because you won't have to pay these back. The other one that's retroactive. So once again, here, let's not file a return yet if this applies. If you had unemployment compensation, either you or your spouse, and if your income was under $150,000. And that goes across all filing statuses, which is another kind of weird one. I think they were probably staying up. The interns that draft this language at midnight when they're trying to pass these bills may have been not drinking enough coffee on this one. But the $150,000 income limit is across all filing thresholds. So whether you're single, married, filing joint, head of household, if your income is below that number, you can get up to $10,200 of unemployment tax-free. So normally you have to pay tax on that. It sounds kind of counterintuitive. The government's helping you out and say, no, I'm going to require you to pick that up as taxable income and pay some of that back. That's the case normally. Now we're going to get a $10,000 deduction from income on that per spouse. And that's really strange that married filing joint versus single, everyone is across the board at that 150 k AGI. Yeah, it's unusual. We don't normally see that. And that's at least how the, the law is written now. Stay tuned. Perhaps the IRS will try to come up with some kind of other explanation for that. I think that's where we're going to end up at. And just to further clarify for everyone why that's strange, that would be like when we talked about the $1,400 stimulus check per individual, that would be like saying, well, if you were single, instead of that 75000 with a phase out of eighty, it's now 150000 That was what it was for married filing joint when there's two people. So it's weird that this is sticking out like that. So they probably did have not enough coffee and they were burning the midnight oil with this one. But that's really interesting. It's either that or that was the rounding adjustment that got the bill in right at the right level that they needed to in order to pass it. So who knows? But nevertheless, that's what we've got. So those are the two retroactive changes. So either of those things apply. You're thinking, oh, gosh, that's me. Yeah, let's hold off on your return if you haven't filed it couple miscellaneous items before we kind of wrap things up. Student loan forgiveness. That's been a hot topic with potential legislation. Oh, yeah. We'll go into that. 
Obviously, there's been some promises during the campaign trail. Hey, maybe we'll make a certain amount of student loans, forgive a certain amount of them. I think we're seeing kind of the first salvo in this fight inserted into this bill. And it's not going to mean a whole lot right yet because of how they've inserted this language. But I think it's a harbinger kind of of things to come. So it's worth keeping an eye on. They have made student loan forgiveness tax-free, but only for 2021 through 2025. So it can be a really big deal if you were due to have student loan forgiveness apply to you in the next couple of years, but there's not a whole lot of people in that window, just the way that student loan processes work. But I think that's their way of sneaking it in here, and it's going to be something they're going to try to accelerate into years beyond 2025 at some point. Yeah. So one, this bill passed with no Republican support. There was no Republican that was raising the hand going, yes, I think this is awesome. And the reason I bring that up is because they have an end date for a reason. I think they're going to do some, maybe some student debt cancellation. And this is the way to do that without it being taxable. So maybe Biden can sign something and there's no triggering of it there. The majority of people obviously that are listening here are going for PSLF. This is really not concerning PSLF. That was already forgivable with no tax bomb that was coming. This is for those that are on an income-driven repayment plan, pay as an example. And after you'd pay 20 years, then it would be forgiven. Pay started in, I believe, 2013, I want to say. So 20 years from there, that's 2033. This isn't meant for that. The only people that can actually benefit from this through that actual forgiveness is those that are on income contingent repayment or ICR, which no one should be on because then you would absolutely be overpaying. And that was the worst thing that you could be doing with all the other different repayment plans out there. But if for some weird reason that is you and you've been paying it for this long, then it actually makes sense. But just a heads up, we're going to see a ton of headlines that are going to be extremely misleading. They're going to say only a few are going to get forgiveness and through this period and da, da, da. Yes, because some of these repayment plans didn't even start with enough time to hit like pay will hit the 20 year mark during this threshold or there's time period. So it absolutely makes sense that a lot of people can't get this because they haven't even gone through the full program. That would be like for those that are going for public service loan forgiveness, that you've made six years of payments. And that is when this bill technically would end, if you will. And you're like, well, why didn't I get repayment? I put my stuff in. It's like, well, you still have four more years of repayment. Like you don't apply. So a lot of people, it's not going to apply to them. And so I think just like we had a year or so ago when it was 99% got rejected and we did a whole podcast on why that was the case because there was mistakes or they shouldn't have done this or they didn't have the right repayment status or they didn't even have direct loans. We're going to see more scary headlines. Just ignore the noise. It is absolutely going to be fake news. It's just going to be absolutely silly and it's going to be frustrating because I know a ton of you are going to have some anxiety with it. So here's my disclaimer on that one, but it could create some precedence for what they will be doing. But I think this is primarily the way to to trigger it that we get through that's, look, the majority of people, almost everyone, no one's going to actually get this. It's really going to be there. So if Biden decides, hey, anyone below $10,000 of student debt, we're going to cancel this. It's not going to be taxable income to them. That's just my speculation. I don't know this. I'm not in the government. I would never want to be in the government, but this is my speculation on what we're seeing here with this because most people, uh, like I said, well, this doesn't apply. 
And of course, they had to get this scored, obviously, to squeeze it through the budget reconciliation process. So that's why we're seeing these weird end dates. I'm sure somebody figured out that if we just did it through 2025, it doesn't cost us anything in the bill. So I think you're right on, Ryan. That's kind of just a way for them to introduce the subject and for further use. So so I'm sure we'll hear more about this topic over the next couple of years. It's a game of chess and they won this game because they put this in and Republicans were probably not smart enough to do all the math. Maybe they are, maybe knocking the politicians a little too much, but they probably weren't thinking, oh, this isn't going to cost us anything. Why are we putting this in? They probably said, whatever, we're just trying to get this thing going and they want to reject it anyway. And the Democrats played the game of chess and said, hey, we could probably end up canceling some of this debt. And now we've made it tax free for those people. John, I know one of the things that we had talked about prior was the required minimum distribution. And this might not affect a ton of people listening because you are not retiring now. You're not over the age of 72, but I know that there are some changes and a lot of you have parents that might be doing this. And so the previous bill had some changes to RMD. What do we see here with the RMD or the required minimum distribution? Yeah, so one of the things left out of the bill that just never reappeared that we thought might be there, but there are no changes to required minimum distributions for 2021. So if you remember back to last year, we had a couple things where either didn't have to take RMDs or if you had taken them, you could put them back. We don't have any of that thing here. If you are retirement age, parents retirement age, yeah, they have to go back to taking their required minimum distributions from IRAs for this year. And we know that this was a hot topic with the $15 minimum wage. And we know that nothing actually came of that. But anything else that you'd want to maybe add to that? I think we're going to re-see that many times over the next recent probably months. But anything else with the minimum wage or any other pieces that, that we didn't see that were maybe inside this? Yeah, like I said, I think we'll probably see that again, Ryan, like you mentioned. There wasn't enough political capital, I think, left on the Democrat side. They figured they were, the Republicans probably peel off a couple Democrats on that topic, so they didn't push it in this one. We'll likely see it revisited, but yeah, no, no movement in this bill on the minimum wage, so we'll have to keep our eyes out for that in the future. Awesome. Those of you that don't know or didn't know prior to this one, John and I have done all about taxes last August of 2020. We talked a ton about tax I was actually blown away that you guys, one, wanted to hear a whole month on tax because I kept getting tax questions, but then you had a ton of follow-up questions around taxes. So we've had John on a couple times since then. And John, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. John, like I said, is the co-founder and one of our partners at Physician Tax Advisors, where we're helping all of you physicians out there with your tax planning and tax preparation and filing. I've been working with the team for six, seven tax seasons now, so They can't get rid of me at all, even though they try, they can't. We're joking. We have a great time. John has helped out so much and same with Kelly, who's also been on the show. But John, anything that maybe you want to end with here about either where they can find you or anything about the practice that maybe I've missed and haven't stated? Yeah, I think you summed it up pretty good. Check out the website, physiciantaxadvisors.com. And we've got a wait list out there. We're not taking any more new clients yet for this year as we're struggling with new legislation and everything else. We want to make sure we help all of our existing clients out the best we can, but certainly love to talk to all of you after April 15th and certainly would love to help you out as we move into 2021. Yeah, I saw the wait list coming in. I've also seen some questions come in about being on the wait list. And there's about 80 of you, I think, that are on the wait list since the middle of February when we cut this off, knowing that there was going to be changes, knowing that things are going to happen. So like John said, after April 15th, we'll open back up off the wait list. And that way we can help everyone 
yeah, we look forward to helping you guys. If you need any tax planning or tax strategies on how to reduce the amount that you paid Uncle Sam in a legal manner, and you can do that by going to physiciantaxadvisors.com. John, thanks so much for being on, bud. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. All right. So I hope that was helpful. I know John loves doing these things as we've joked about multiple times, even on the show and offline. The IRS is really building the plane midair as they're doing these things. And we could even see some of the cracks that were even in their logic don't make sense. But I think the big kind of take home for those that have student debt that are already attendings is that there's going to be some real clickbaity headlines that are coming. Don't be swayed by it. Don't have that fear. Don't have doubt on what you're doing. PSLF is totally safe. If for some strange reason you're going for the 20-year pay forgiveness or 25 with repay, this will not be affected truly. Like I said in the show, that you could actually even get forgiveness during this period. But I think there will be some debt cancellation that will occur. And this is their mechanism to not only cancel the debt and to make essentially tax-free income for those people that get their student loans canceled, but that will likely not be you. That will likely be those that are at or near the poverty line. Maybe it could extend out to some residents and fellows. We'll see with Biden what they're doing. But I think right now it's they played chess. They've moved their pieces across the board. They've lined them all up and we now need to wait for the next shoe to drop with how that'll be affected. I think the major takeaway from the show is that if you are a resident or fellow in 2021 and you will be an attending in 2021, there is a lot of different tax things that are going to occur and you need to be very, very careful. And I think most of you probably end up needing to work with a CPA that will help you out. So John and the team are absolutely fantastic. Like I said, I've used them for years. We've started a whole business with them. I know I can trust them a lot. And I know that they can help you out. So check them out, physiciantaxadvisors.com. All right, let's move into our financial malpractice. I have on Note Song and Nathan from Thoughtful Wills. What's up, guys? Hey, Ryan. Hello. Hello, Nathan. <laughs> Excited to have you guys back with our monthly get together here that we're doing. And this month, I think Note Song is going to lead us off. What do we have for the audience here in terms of a financial malpractice, horror story, something, however you want to call it, or with respects to estate planning? Well, I've got quite a horror story for you. And basically, I'm kind of going backwards because I'm going to tell you the moral of the story is to always remember that your non-probate assets need to be part of your estate plan. I repeat, your non-probate assets need to be part of your estate plan. So heartbreaking horror story. Um, There's a mom, we'll call her Caroline, was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And she ended up passing away very young, was survived by her adult daughters, Anna and Bethany, and her husband, Charles. Now, most spouses leave most, if not all, of their assets to their spouse. But that is not what Caroline wanted because She and Charles recently married, and he was not the biological father of her girls. What she wanted was to ensure that the money she received from an inheritance before they were married went to her daughters instead of Charles, which is perfectly legal. She can do that. You can do that with an estate plan, customize it with however you want your plan to be distributed. Charles was completely understanding of it, close to the daughters, totally on board with the plan. But when she died, the money that was supposed to go to her daughters actually went to Charles. So what happened was that she forgot all about the accounts. The money that was supposed to go to her daughters 
was not updated, it didn't have proper beneficiary designations. So all of her assets were swept into her probatable estate, which went 100% to Charles under her will. You know, they're all devastated, heartbroken over losing their mom and his wife. And Charles got everything and her daughters got nothing. So this situation, horrible, heartbreaking. But thankfully, Charles is good hearted. And thankfully for the girls, he had a good conscience and he honored his wife's wishes and he tried everything to make things right. But it took a lot of time and money. And it turned out he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. It's just horrible. <laughs> Just like tragic, tragic, tragic. But, you know, he still did everything in his power to ensure that her estate was passed on to her daughters like she wished. But that took a lot of financial paperwork. It took attorneys, court fees, probate costs a lot of money, 2 to 4% of your estate. And, um, you know, that total estate didn't go to her daughters. But eventually it did. But it just took a lot of pain in the ass. And only because... Charles was a really stand-up guy, right? To sort of, I mean, the, the issue here again, I think, and this is something that I think people forget about, there are these concepts of the non-probate assets, right? So we're talking about financial accounts, life insurance, retirement accounts. Those are the main sort of non-probate assets. And what happens is you sign up for your life insurance when you're, you know, in your 20s or something like that. You name your spouse. And then, you know, 15 years go by and you forget that it's not just like, you know, you've named a very specific person. So if you get divorced and remarry and you have some new kids or something like that, none of that matters with respect to your life insurance. Those non-probate assets have their own, essentially their own distribution mechanism built into the asset. So it doesn't matter what your will says or your trust says, your life insurance, all it does is go by the beneficiary designation that you made maybe a long time ago. So if you get divorced and remarried and you leave your ex-spouse, if you just forget, tough luck, Right. And so that's, I think, the key here is if you're working with professionals like good attorneys or financial advisors, they will sort of remind you to sort of think long and hard about what all of those assets might be so that you can sort of inventory them and then you can check to make sure that they're updated to sort of what your current wishes are. We actually then always suggest that you use your living trust essentially as like a clearinghouse. So instead of naming your current spouse, and then having to remember like, oh, yeah, I have my ex-spouse, or now I want my kids, or now I'm mad at that kid. So instead of trying to constantly update the beneficiary of all of these non-probate assets, we suggest that you just point all of these into your trust and have the trust act as essentially a clearinghouse for all of your assets. And that way, then, if you get divorced, or if one of your kids turns rotten, or whatever happens, right, all you have to do is update your trust. And you don't have to worry about sort of, again, trying to remember all of your different accounts. Yeah, that was actually going to be my question. So thank you for walking through that. I think it was really helpful. And while it is a tragic situation, it thankfully had a good ending. And I think the the moral of the story is make sure that everything is titled correctly and make sure that you have the appropriate state planning stuff done, that you've updated things, that you're actually paying attention and looking at beneficiaries. It's always important. I know that we talk about this a lot on the show. We talk about it with our clients. Like It's just something that most people tend to forget and we don't want anyone to forget these things. So thank you guys so much for being back on. I appreciate you guys greatly. For anyone that does not have your estate planning done, please get it done. And these are two fantastic individuals that Taylor and I used to get our stuff done. So you can reach out to them at financialresidency.com slash TW. 
All right, everyone. Well, happy Monday. Hope you guys are all doing well and safe. Love to get more questions answered on the Financial Residency Show. You can do that by going to financialresidency.com slash question. I know I didn't put one in this show because we actually recorded this very short duration before actually going live. Like I mentioned with John, we're recording this on Saturday the 13th to be released on Monday the 15th, which is probably the quickest turnaround time we've had in the show other than when we do some live streaming. And speaking of live streaming, we've got some really cool stuff for you. So starting the first week of April, we will be live streaming some of the Money Meets Medicine shows that Jimmy Turner and I record uh, with Money Money Meets Medicine, as well as our Friday show that I record with Casey is going to be actually live streamed for the majority of time. And that will be actually on Thursdays. So I will have more info as we get closer to that date. But if you are on YouTube and you like watching live streams, or if you'd like to interact with either Jimmy or Casey and I, we'd love to have you there and join us. And you'll be able to find us financialresidency.com slash YouTube. That link is not live just yet, but we will be doing that starting in early April. And that way you can come participate, hang out. And a lot of the guests that we bring on for Monday will also be live streamed there, or at least the videos will be uploaded there because we have upgraded our tech stack. And now we are able to not only record audio, but video and audio of all the interviews that we're doing, which is super fun. So I love that. That's my kind of quick community update for you all. And we're going to be interacting with the community a lot more through the show. So if you haven't joined our community, which is about 6,000 of you now in the physician finance community, please do so. Financialresidency.com slash community. Before we end out, let's hear the last message from today's sponsor. We're so thankful of Larry Keller for not only being in our community, but also sponsoring today's show. So don't forget to reach out to Larry of Physician Financial Services for your disability insurance needs. He's been around for, let's call it a while, and he's definitely in our physician community. We love him and he helps so many of our financial residency listeners getting the coverage that they need. So hit up Larry at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Larry Keller. It's all one word, L-A-R-R-Y. K-E-L-L-E-R, or of course, you can click the link in our description. All right, have a great week, and I will see you guys on Friday. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.